Open your Bibles to John chapter 5. When I was in college, the president of the school said something I never forgot one time in a chapel service. He said, if you aren't in trouble at least half the time, you aren't doing anything at all. So I took that as my life verse. (laughs) Until someone said, well, you're not supposed to be in trouble all the time. You know, I think I've actually found biblical justification for that little phrase, if you aren't in trouble at least half the time, you aren't doing anything at all, because I believe as we come back to consider uh, John 5 again today, we're going to see Jesus getting into trouble on purpose. Now understand that I believe Jesus never did anything wrong, but he did get into trouble. Those are two different things. Follows I read from John chapter 5. After this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there is in Jerusalem by the sheep gate a pool, which is called in Hebrew Bethesda, having five porches. In these lay a great multitude of sick people, blind, lame, paralyzed, waiting for the moving of the water. For an angel went down at a certain time into the pool and stirred up the water, then whoever stepped in first after the stirring of the water was made, was made well of whatever disease he had. Now a certain man was there who had an infirmity 38 years. And when Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there in that condition a long time, he said to him, do you want to be made well? The sick man answered him, Sir, I have no man to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. But while I am coming, another one steps down before me. Jesus said to him, Rise, take up your bed and walk. And immediately the man was made well. He took up his bed and he walked. And that day was the Sabbath. The Jews therefore said to him who was cured, It is the Sabbath. It is not lawful for you to carry your bed. He answered them, He who made me well said to me, take up your bed and walk. Then they asked him, who is the man who said to you, take up your bed and walk? But the one who was healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn a multitude being in that place. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, see, you have been made well, sin no more, lest a worse thing come upon you. The man departed and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had made him well. For this reason the Jews persecuted Jesus and sought to kill him because he had done these things on the Sabbath. The first thing that we need to understand here today is the purposefulness of Jesus in what he did. There are a number of indicators of Christ's purposefulness. Um, And, you know, it goes without saying, we're going to talk about it more in a minute, but God doesn't do anything by accident. God is not the cause of evil, I understand that. He does allow certain things to take place, but in this case, Jesus, being God in the flesh, directly did some things on purpose to, as I have called my sermon, to stir the pot, to get people's attention. What are the indicators of his purposefulness here? First of all, in verse 1, Jesus went to Jerusalem when there was a feast of the Jews. We don't know which feast it was. There were three feasts a year when all of the Jewish men in the whole nation were supposed to come to Jerusalem. We would presume it was one of those feasts. It could have been one of the lesser feasts. 
But suffice it to say, there were a lot of extra people in town on this day. And Jesus knew that. In verse 2, he did this miracle in a place called the House of Mercy. The word Bethesda, we, we have, of course, the Bethesda Naval Hospital, or we used to. It's going to be closed down, I understand. It means the House of Mercy. It's not an accident that Jesus did an act of mercy at the House of Mercy. In verses 2 to 3, we find Jesus doing this miracle of healing on the Sabbath in a very public place. There were sick people all over Israel. Did Jesus need to go to this place and do this miracle on this day? Well, apparently, yes, he did. In verse 5, he found a man who needed to be healed who was lying on a bed. This man had an infirmity, and he was lying there for 38 years. In verse 8, after Jesus healed him, he, he didn't just say, rise, and like he said other times, for instance, go to the priest and present themselves, present yourselves for the ritual, the ritual um, approval after you've been healed. He said, rise, take up your bed, and walk. And then in verse 9, it says, it, John, under God's inspiration, tells us this was the Sabbath day. And then we find down in verse 16 that, the, that Jesus was persecuted because he had done these things on the Sabbath day. This is not an accident. And what we're going to understand next is healing this man was not the point of what Jesus did. I don't even believe that showing his power over physical infirmity was the point. There are times when he heals people just to show that he can do it. But this one had a much greater point. What is the broad reason for the purposefulness of God? What is the broad reason for the purposefulness of God? There was a great multitude. Look at verse 3. A great multitude of sick people. One was healed. We need to take note of that, folks. Jesus didn't always heal everybody. There were times, you can find it in the scripture, when it says he went into town and he healed all of their sick. Why did he do that sometimes, but here only one man? Because he was purposeful in what he was doing. And, and what I would suggest to you, first of all, is his purpose is this. His purpose was not to make this man feel better. It is really hard for us as modern day Americans to get our mind around the fact that it is not God's job to make you feel good. When we're sick, we want to be well, period. That's what we want. That's what we expect. That's why people fuss so much about medical insurance because they think somehow that's going to make them well. And medical insurance is better than none. But wellness comes from God, and sickness is allowed by God at times. Dr. Bill Belshaw, in his commentary on John, said this, Christ had the power to heal everyone there, but it was not his purpose to heal the sick while he walked on the earth. That was not his purpose. Therefore, the purpose for his healing ministry was far deeper than relieving physical affliction. His miracles were performed as signs. They were intended to teach a lesson. Let's look at a couple of examples of this. 
Now as Jesus passed by, he saw a man who was blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, saying, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? There was a common understanding that if you were ill, especially if you were in a significant illness, you had sinned. Now, why would they think that? Well, if you go back to the Old Testament, you will find that, Jesus, that God said to the people, if you follow me, if you obey me, I will bless you. And if you don't, I will put the plagues on you that I put on Egypt and more. It was God's Old Testament system. Now, does that mean every single sick person was being judged by God? No, I don't think it does. I think there still was what we would call common illness. There's common illness today. You know, the, if you get the avian flu, if that morphs into a human thing and you get it, is that God's judgment on you? No, not necessarily. But there were times when that was the case. And so they commonly, they looked at this man and said, who sinned? They thought, hey, Jesus knows everything. Let's find out what the real source of this problem was. Now look what he says. Jesus answered, neither this man nor his parents sinned, but that the works of God should be revealed in him. You know what that means, folks? Sometimes you're going to get the privilege of being sick. Or as the, that verse says, sick, blind, lame, paralyzed. Because the works of God are going to be displayed in you. Most of us would say, uh, I'll take the healing, please. God can work in that guy sitting next to me. You know what? I'm with you. I'm with you. The works of God. Listen to this example. When Jesus heard that Lazarus had died, he said, this sickness is not unto death. In other words, the point of Lazarus being so ill and dying, the point is not that he's going to die, but for the glory of God, that the Son of God may be glorified through it. He says, something bigger is going to happen here. Something bigger. It's awful hard for us to get our heads up off of our illness and to see that something bigger could be at play. The unifying principle of the world, the Bible, and your life is the glory of God. Whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Why did Jesus heal that man, that one man by the pool of Bethesda? Because he intended to do something to bring glory to God. He intended to accomplish something in these people. He, attempted, he, he intended to give them an opportunity to glorify God. Now they rejected the opportunity as we'll see. But he was giving them an opportunity to come into more correct relationship with him and to give him glory. Why does God do the things he does in your life? Why does God allow the things he allows in your life? It's to bring honor and glory to himself. Now, don't blame God for your choices for sin. That's your choice for sin. God will help you out of it, but you may have some mess to live with. And that, God didn't do that. But there are circumstances that come upon you from around and, and some things that come on your body that you have no control over. Why does God do that? He does it because he wants to bring glory to himself. And the question is, will you cooperate with him in bringing glory to him or will you fight that? When we get sick, we pray, oh God, this hurts, please take it away. That's all we think about. But God isn't going to heal you just so you can feel good. 
James 4, 3 says you ask or you pray and you do not receive. Why? Because you are asking wrongly just to spend it on your pleasures. Now, I'm for physical health. (laughs) Don't get me wrong. I'm for being healthy, wealthy, and wise. But there's some times when it ain't happening, and the reason is because God wants to do something in us that will cause us to bring glory to him. God isn't going to give you someone or something just because you can't imagine life any other way. God does not reward large amounts of faith with special blessings. Did you see how much faith this man put in Christ before he got healed? How much? Zero. In fact, he didn't even say, well, of course I want to be healed. What kind of goofball are you? He just said, you know, if you could just help me get into that pool. I mean, Jesus saying, saying, maybe he just misunderstood. He doesn't have a clue about Jesus, and Jesus goes, get up and walk. We have a common idea that a lot of Christians promote, and that is, if you believe enough, if you put enough faith in God, he'll do whatever it is you're asking, and that is wrong. God doesn't reward our good deeds with some special blessing. He gives us what he knows is best for us. Listen to Paul's testimony. If anybody had faith, surely it was Paul, right? I mean, he was an apostle, and he, he wrote, what, 12 books of the New Testament, and he, and he did all these things, you know, and traveled all over the world spreading the gospel. And lest I should be exalted, this is after he'd had an opportunity to have a vision of Christ, he, he, he said, I don't know if I actually went to heaven and saw Christ or if I talked to him face to face in a vision. But either way, as a result of that vision, he said, lest I should be exalted above measure, by the abundance of the revelations, a thorn in the flesh was given to me, a messenger of Satan to buffet me. Now, what was Paul's thorn in the flesh? Well, we don't know. But it was something that bothered him. I think most likely it was some kind of physical ailment. I I don't think there's any reason to understand it any other way than a physical ailment and understand that it was Satan who wanted to come in and hurt Paul and God allowed it to happen. A messenger of Satan to buffet me. And the word buffet means like to beat or to, to, to hurt lest I be exalted above measure. There's the purpose. God said, it isn't godly to be proud, and and I think you're going to need some humbling after this. And so he opened the door and let Satan come in and harm him. Concerning this thing, I pleaded with the Lord three times that it might depart from me. And he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, most gladly will I rather boast or brag in my infirmities or weaknesses that the power of Christ may rest upon me. The real miracle in physical difficulty is that you can continue to trust God and be optimistic in Him. That's the miracle. That's one of the miracles that God wants to do to show Himself powerful to the world. Therefore, I take pleasure in infirmities, in reproaches, in needs, in persecutions, in distresses for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong. The Apostle Paul was just like you and me. When this thing came on him, he said, oh God, take it away. 
Take it away. And he says he prayed three times. Does that mean three prayers? I think it probably means three seasons of prayer. I can't imagine the Paul, Paul praying three days in a row, one little prayer, and then that's it. I can't imagine that. He prayed, and God said, God clearly said, it's not gonna happen. And so he said, all right, God's gonna show himself strong through the weakness. God has purposes that we can see, but oftentimes we don't always see them up front because all we see is our own existence. We need to be concerned for God's glorious character to shine forth in our lives, however he may choose to do that. And Jesus was about to, to give these Jewish leaders an opportunity to glorify God more in their lives. And so he very specifically acted. We, in fact, we want to understand maybe what the specific reason for his purposefulness was. And that would be this. Jesus knew that some things needed to change in their belief system and in their living. So he orchestrated these events in order to remove a false spirituality and to cause real righteousness to come in its place. Now here's just a little side note. Did you notice that Jesus doesn't do this by entering into a nice, peaceful, academic dialogue with the Pharisees? Hey, hey Pharisee boys, let's sit down and talk about this Sabbath thing. Now what's he do? In our words today, he got right in their face. Can God do that? Is that okay for God to do that? Yeah. The more you resist God, the more he's going to resist you. 1 Peter 5, God gives grace to the humble, but he resists the proud. You know what the word resist means there? It means to go to war. God goes to war with the proud. He's not just talking about proud in earthly terms. He's talking about proud like you look up to heaven and go, I don't care what you say. And God says, oh, want to do a little work here, buddy? And that's what Jesus does. So he comes into town and he goes, how could I get those Pharisees' attention? I know. I'm going to heal this guy and tell him to pick up his bed and walk on, on the Sabbath day. And I'm going to do it when there's scads of people around. Because when he is carrying his bed, walking down the street, everybody's going to notice that. They aren't going to notice Jesus, but they're going to notice that guy carrying his bed because that was strictly taboo. And so that's what he does. He goes after what I have called the perversion of the Pharisees. Now, understand this word perversion. The per a perversion is something that is good, which has been bent or twisted and has become something evil. In this case, the good thing is the Sabbath day. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. And as we talked about this last week, the word Sabbath means rest. And the clear instruction of God in the Old Testament was don't work on the seventh day. Take a day off and honor me with your rest. And this was a, a clear instruction of God. It was plain, it was simple. There were a few extra instructions to go with it, but not much. It wasn't a day of worship. It was a day of rest. And there, the worship came through honoring God and doing what God said. But the Pharisees perverted it. They were not content to leave God's truth alone. 
want to read to you some things about their rules made up to go with the Sabbath. I found some of this just funny. The Jewish teachers made a very thoroughgoing attempt to stop all work on the Sabbath and made some of their and and some of their regulations were really extraordinary. Thus in the Mishnah. Now the Mishnah would be what we would call a Bible commentary. You know if we we have books over there that are commentaries on Bible truths. Well they had this one called the Mishnah. And it was a huge commentary on the Old Testament law. It was not God's law, it was what man's writings about the law. So in the Mishnah on a on a piece of Uh, writing on the Sabbath, we read of 39 classes of work that are forbidden on the Sabbath. This was not, however, a complete list. Both at the beginning and at the end, it, it is insisted that these are the main classes of work, which leaves open the possibility that other activities were prohibited as well. And they certainly were. A man might not go out on the Sabbath wearing one sandal, unless he had a wound in his foot. The reasoning was that if he went out with one sandal, it would give rise to suspicion that he was carrying the other sandal under his coat, and that was forbidden work. If he was wounded, however, nobody would think that he had another sandal with him. Again, while it was quite in order to borrow wine or oil from a neighbor on the Sabbath, you could not say, lend them to me. To say this would imply that a transaction was being made, and a transaction might involve writing, which was one of the 39 forbidden classes of work. Are are you getting a little bit fed up with this yet? A man should not search his clothing on the Sabbath, looking for fleas. (laughs) Not making this up. He must not search his clothing for fleas, nor should he read by lamplight. The point of this reading by lamplight is that he might be engrossed in his reading and forgetful that it was the Sabbath, and he might perform the work of tipping the lamp to make the oil flow into the wick so that he could have a better light. That's a forbidden category of work. A woman was forbidden to dress her hair or paint her eyelids, for she would then be engaged in the forbidden work of building or dyeing, as in dyeing clothing and building a house. You're building something. Maybe if your makeup's not too thick, it would be okay. (laughs) One regulation that I rather like was concerned with the toothache. One must not put vinegar on one's teeth in an attempt to soothe the toothache. Ew, does that soothe the toothache? I, don't, I just want to... You're not, you're not allowed to do that on the Sabbath day because that would be a forbidden act of healing. But it was permitted to take vinegar in the ordinary course of a meal, and the rabbis added philosophically, if he's healed, he's healed. Now, do you understand that? In other words, you can't take the vinegar and rub it on, but if it's on your salad and you eat it, well, that, who's to say? Um, yeah. It was stipulated that one must not carry things in either hand, in one bosom, that means inside a clothing like this, or on one shoulder. 
These were ordinary methods of carrying things and were clearly work. But a regulation says if he took it out on the back of his hand, if he took it out on the back of his hand or with his foot or in his wallet with the mouth carried downwards or between his wallet and his shirt or in the hem of his shirt or in his shoe or in his sandal, then he's not guilty since he has not taken it out after the fashion of them that take out a burden. Now, can you believe they had all those rules? What's Jesus' rule? Or what was God's rule? Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Take a day off from work. And what do these guys do? They started writing up, what's it mean to work? And they came up with all of this foolishness. What is the source of this perversion among these people? Well, the source of the perversion is in, from Mark chapter 7. Jesus criticized them and he says, you guys hold to or you believe and practice what is called the traditions of the elders. Now, they had two sources of authority, God's word and then the commentary on God's word. And the commentary was loosely called the traditions of the fathers. And, could be, and part of the reason they called it the tradition of the father and not just a book is because these things would have been verbally spoken and handed down, but not all of them written down like we would today when publishing is such an easy thing. Now here's the thing where I want you to start to get a hold of this for your life. The tradition of the elders came about because they decided they needed to clarify God's truth. God hasn't told us enough. And so they said, well, let's figure out what God really meant. And some of that stuff that I read to you was part of what they came up with and part of what they debated. And it's why Jesus got in trouble when he went to heal on the Sabbath and when the man picked up his bed to, and told him to walk. They decided they needed to clarify God's truth. And here's the real kicker. Once they clarified God's truth, they taught that the clarification as equally authoritative to the Bible. Be therefore, because they said picking fleas out of your clothes is work, therefore, if you're picking fleas out of your clothes, you are not keeping the Sabbath, period. Um, God did not prohibit a man from picking up his bed on the Sabbath day. You can't quite conceptualize of this because your bed is a great big king-size whopper, John, and you can't even pick it up when it's not the Sabbath day. <laughs> but the bed this man was sleeping on would have been a little thin woven mat, uh, you know, uh, what's the word, jute, or uh, you know, like you have little baskets made out of uh, little fibrous material. They had a little mat like that. In Africa today, they, have, they don't have a bedroom and a living room and all these rooms in the house where they leave the bed set up all the time, do they? They, they lay the bed, they roll the bed. They have, you know, a lot of them have one room. They, they roll their mat out and they sleep there. And when they get up, they roll it up and it's the living room. Probably everybody in Israel picked up their bed on the Sabbath day. God never intended for all of these rules and all of these foolishness, foolish things that they came to. How does this come down? What, what was the power of their perversion? The power of their perversion 
was pride. Turn with me to Romans chapter 14 before we get to that point. Actually, I'm trying to follow my own notes here. Romans 14. Because still some of you are saying, well, you know, Pastor Dave, I don't think this really applies to me a whole lot. Well, I think it really does. And I hope I can bring that home to you here in Romans chapter 14, verses 1 through 14. Receive one who is weak in the faith, an immature Christian, a young Christian. Receive them, but not to disputes over doubtful things. For one person believes he may eat everything, but he who is weak eats only vegetables. He's talking about the Old Testament dietary laws. Some people who maybe who came out of Judaism said, oh, we can't, we can't eat pork, for instance. Oh, that's terrible. And, other, and some other guy that had been a Gentile and he got saved, came to the Lord, oh, it's all good. He said, look, don't argue about such things. Let not him who eats despise him who does not eat. Let not him who does not eat judge him who eats, for God has received him. Who are you to judge another man's servant, another person's servant. He's talking about God. He said, this person belongs to God and you're judging him. To his own master he stands or falls. Indeed, he will be made to stand for God is able to make him stand. One person esteems one day above the other. Another esteems every day alike. He's talking about the Old Testament rules on the Sabbath and these different feasts. He says, you don't have to keep one or the other, but if a guy likes one, that's fine. Don't, don't argue with him about it. Verse 7, for none of us lives to himself, no one dies to himself. For if we live, we live to the Lord. If we die, we die to the Lord. Therefore, whether we live or die, we are the Lord's. For to this end, Christ died and rose, rose and lived again, that he might be Lord of both the dead and the living. But why do you judge your brother? Or why do you show contempt for your brother? For we shall all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. For it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall confess to God. So then each of us shall give account of himself to God. Therefore, let us not judge one another anymore, but rather resolve this, not to put a stumbling block or to cause to fall, to put a stumbling block or a cause to fall in our brother's way. There are issues of life, choices we have to make, which are not clearly enunciated by God. And here's the trick question today. Which way is right to, to live then? Your way or my way? And what's the answer to a trick question? That's somebody who's been in my Sunday school class. Neither one of those ways is the only singular right way to live. You have to take God's word and apply it to your life. Now, is God's word clear on a whole bunch of stuff in life? Yes, it is. I had somebody come and tell me one time about an addictive habit that they had. I'm waiting for God to tell me to give it up. Well, I think he already told you. I think it's really clear you're hurting your body and you're addicted and you're not under control there so there's no there's no waiting for the moving of the waters here buddy you just need to stop this but some of the things that we've argued about over the years not here thankfully you know is it okay for a woman to wear makeup 
Is it okay for a woman to wear pants to church? Is it okay for a man not to wear a tie? Do you have to send your kids to the Christian school? Do you have to homeschool them? Must you not do either of those and must you be in the public square? Is there an absolute right answer to these questions? And Jesus says, who are you to judge another man's servant? See, that's what the Pharisees did. They came up with their own understanding of the scripture. And if you didn't live up to it, buddy, you're in trouble. And they're looking down their nose at you. Jesus was criticized by the Pharisees because he hung out with, he ate with, he talked to women to prostitutes, to tax collectors? Was he right or wrong? Well, he was obviously right. But they judged him because they had their understanding of what was right and what was appropriate. And they said, you're wrong, you're bad. There are things which God does not explicitly command or prohibit in the scripture, and we have to make choices about those things. And the, one of the greatest dangers we can fall into is, is coming to the belief that our choice, our application of God's word in our life is the only way Christian life can be lived. And we don't give people the liberty before God, under God, to make that choice. That's what the Pharisees did. That's what it means to be a Pharisee. It means to make your rule stand in the place of God's rule. Now, what was the power of their perversion? The power of their perversion was pride. Listen to this. Then Jesus spoke to the multitudes and to his disciples, saying, the scribes and the Pharisees sit in Moses' seat. What does that mean? Well, Moses was the lawgiver, he was a great judge over Israel. And he says the Pharisees sit in that seat. They want to be there and be the great lawgiver and the great judge. Therefore, whatever they tell you to do, observe that, observe and do, but do not do according to their works or the way they live, for they say and do not do. For they bind heavy burdens, hard to bear, and they lay them on men's shoulders, but they themselves will not move them with one of their fingers. But all their works they do to be seen by men. They make their phylacteries broad and enlarge the border of their garments. A phylactery was a, a little box that contained a piece of scripture, and they would wear it on their forehead. And it says they made theirs big. So everybody go, wow, look at, look at how much scripture he's toting around there. Wow, he's really a godly man. They love the best places at the feasts, the best seats in the synagogues. If they were in church today, they'd say, Brother Dave, don't, don't you have any chairs on the platform where I can sit? I want everybody to see me. They love the greetings in the marketplaces, and they love to be called teacher, teacher. They were driven by pride. They were not driven by a desire to glorify God and to help other people glorify God. They had come up with their understanding of God's word, and if you didn't live it out, they were going to tell you so. Could you get your mind around this today? Is there anything more arrogant than taking your idea and placing it alongside God's truth and saying, these are the same? Is there anything more arrogant than that? Wow, that's awful. 
you wouldn't do that, would you? You wouldn't say, well, God's word says, but I just think. You wouldn't say, like I heard someone quoted this week, I think God's word isn't enough here. Person who's in charge of leading a church said, I, I, I'm, don't call me a heretic, but I think God's word isn't enough. That's what the Pharisees said. That's what the Pharisees did. There's nothing more arrogant than putting your, your thoughts alongside God's as though they are somehow equal. What was the impact of this perversion? There was an impact, first of all, on the average Jewish person. In other words, these Pharisees were like leaders over Israel, so how did it impact the people that they led? Well, again, for, we just read from Matthew 23, for they bind heavy burdens, hard to bear, and they lay them on men's shoulders, but they themselves will not move them with one of their fingers. Think about what I just read about the Sabbath day. Okay, and so you, you get a toothache and you're going, oh, I can't put vinegar on it. Or you forget and put vinegar on it and somehow later in the day you go, man, I had this terrible toothache and I put some vinegar and now it's better. And the Pharisee would go, that's a sin. Oh, and you're going, oh man, I forgot. I, I remembered the other 38 classes of work on the Sabbath, but I forgot about the healing thing. Oh man. I mean, that's what he's talking about. They put heavy burdens. They, you know, they have, they have books and books and books. Today, the Jewish people have books and books and books of commentary on the Old Testament law. They don't even read the Old Testament law. They read the commentary and all these burdens they put on people. I, I read an article recently here about the, uh, what, what are called the Orthodox Jews today, you know, the ones that wear the black coats and the, the black hat, maybe have the side curls and the beard. There, you know, a lot, there's not around here, uh, none that I've seen here. In New York, there's a lot, other large cities, certainly in Israel. Do you know when that clothing dates to? It dates to um, uh, Poland and the Jewish people back in the day in Poland several hundred years ago. And so if you're really Orthodox, you've got to wear that kind of clothing. And I'm thinking, wait a minute. Why don't they go back to the Moses and wear the clothing Moses wore? Well, they have these rules they've made up. We do the same thing sometimes, don't we? We make up a rule. You've got to look this way. You've got to act this way. You've got to talk this way. And, and certainly some of those things are God's truth, but some of them aren't. And then we judge people. You're no good. You're no good. I don't want to hang out with that person. It was a great burden put onto these folks. Warren Wiersbe said this, they had taken the Sabbath, God's gift to man. Think about it. You're used to working seven days a week in Egypt, and after you're delivered out of that, God says, hey, on the seventh day, take a day off. And you're going, yes, it's a day off. You'll be excited about that. I get to rest all day. I can't even go out and collect firewood, because God said, no, don't be collecting firewood. Just eat what you've got there. Oh, it's a whole day off. And, it was, and, and in fact, Jesus said the Sabbath was created for man. And now the Pharisees came along and put all of these, these rules on it. They transformed it into a prison house of regulations and restrictions. What was the effect on the Pharisees? Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. You pay the tithe of mint and anise and cumin, 
These would be little teeny seeds that they had to count out, you know. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, one for God. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, one for God. And they did that. You have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faith. These you should have done without leaving the others undone. What was the effect on the Pharisees? First of all, they were so blinded by their prideful understanding of God's word that they didn't even care that this man got healed. Did you notice they didn't say to him, who healed you? They said, why are you carrying your bed? And he says, the man who healed me. That's what he says. He says, the man who healed me told me to pick it up and walk. And did they say, wow, that's cool, you were healed. Who's the guy? No, they just said, who told you? He said, I, I don't know. And later on, when he went and told them it was Jesus, he didn't say, Jesus told me to carry my bed. He says, Jesus was the one that healed me. And all they cared about was this guy broke our rule. They didn't care about the fact that he was healed. If you get so blinded by your prideful understanding of Scripture that you can't look around and see God at work in people's lives, you're a Pharisee. They were so blinded by their prideful adherence to their own doctrine that they weren't even godly. Sometimes people put on this, this show of godliness, but look what Jesus says. You have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice, mercy, and faith. By the law's own definition, they were not godly. But boy, they kept their little rules. They were so blinded by their prideful love of their own doctrine that they missed knowing Christ in person, in the flesh, and most likely are spending eternity in hell. Think about that. Jesus himself came along and said, hey, hey guys, let's mix it up a little bit. And they looked at him and said, you are messed up. And it says, what does it say back there in John 5? Verse 16, they persecuted him and sought to kill him. That was the result of their insistence upon their own doctrine. Being a Pharisee is not a good thing, whether it's a little bit or a lot. When I was ordained into the gospel ministry, and if you don't know, an ordination in our circles consists of primarily of a doctrinal examination to see if you're true to the faith, and it's done by other pastors. And they come and ask the questions that they don't know the answer to to see if you know the answer, <laughs> to see if you're foolish enough to try and give the answer. And uh, I was standing, you know, like down here, and there's a guy sitting out there about where I own is, and we were in a section, and I was defending my doctrinal statement on, on sin and salvation, and this brother says, are you ultralapsarian or superlapsarian? And I did what most of you are doing. I went, uh... <laughs> and so I thought, might as well be honest. I said, well, you know, brother, I've heard those words before, but right now I don't have a clue what they mean. And it's, it's, it's a doctrinal debate about did sin or salvation come first in the mind of God, Okay. And the, according to what position you have, one of those terms applies to you, okay? And as soon as he said, which came first, the chicken or the egg, I knew right away what he's talking about. I said, brother, God's word doesn't speak about that, so I don't have an opinion. And George Cox was my moderator. If any of you know George Cox, he's not a real gracious kind of guy. He said, well, maybe you can tell us what you think, brother. And he said, 
Well, I agree God's Word doesn't speak about it, but... And he went on to tell us what he thought. Why are you wasting time thinking about stuff God doesn't talk about in the Word? Is God's Word sufficient for us or not sufficient? If it's sufficient, leave it behind. Paul told Timothy, go and instruct some people not to talk about myths and fables. Don't even waste your time. Don't be a Pharisee. God's Word is our soul, our singular, our only rule of faith and practice, and it is plenty enough to keep you busy from now till the Lord comes. Heavenly Father, keep us true to this position. It's, it's easier to preach this than to live it sometimes because I've got some ideas about some things that I think ought to be happening. And Father, I don't want to be judgmental outside of your word. I want to judge by the truth and not by my ideas. And I pray that you would make that true in our whole church, that we give grace where grace ought to be given. We hold people accountable to your word, but not outside of that. Father, don't let us be Pharisees. I pray in Christ's name, amen.